Hi, this is Stephanie Watson. Welcome to another Throwbacks episode of the Gen X Replay podcast. In Throwbacks, my friend Frankie Hagen and I chat about a pop culture topic that heavily influenced us as Gen Xers. And while we center on that topic, we let the conversation flow to our broader Gen X experiences. A quick note, I've wanted to get at least one new episode out weekly for this podcast, but I recently had corrective eye surgery, and that's made it difficult to look at computer screens for long periods. As I heal from that and wait for my eyes to recover, I've also slowed down all the hobbies that involve computers, including gaming, podcasting, streaming, and video production. I'm hoping that things will improve for me over the next few weeks so I can start bringing more material here to the channel. We hope you enjoyed this episode where we talk about revivals and rewinds in the iconic film franchises from our childhood and teens. As part of this, we will talk about Bill and Ted Face the Music as a follow-up from our previous podcast. But we'll warn you when the spoilers start, just in case you haven't seen it yet. Welcome back to Gen X Replay. Frankie, how's it been going? It's good. It's good. We're starting to get the beginning of fall feeling weather. Yes. I'm so thankful for that because oh, me too. eventually it means I can wear hoodies again. And that's yeah. a huge part of my wardrobe. Oh, you you and Hoot both. Uh, he loves his hoodies. He has like probably about a dozen hoodies he cycles through uh, throughout the course of the, uh, a season. Uh, for me, it's get away from the heat. I I don't like heat. <laughs> I'm, I'm good for autumn weather. Autumn me is too. the best. <laughs> and, uh, and and it kind of reminds me of going back to school. And and it has that, you know, even many years later, I get that kind of thrill, that excitement that comes with autumn being around the corner uh, and and those memories of of childhood, of of the excitement of of going back to school and seeing friends and being involved in activities again and Halloween around the corner, of course. And today we're talking... Uh, we're actually going to revisit what we talked about before with Bill and Ted with some reactions on the new film because we did our previous podcast right before Face the Music was released. Yep. And uh, now we've both seen it and we want to talk about that a little bit. We are going to save the spoilers for that to the end of the podcast. We'll, yes. we'll give our initial first impressions. And then we just kind of want to go into talking about revivals and rewinds in general for film franchises that we identify with in our generation from our childhood, teen years, you know, uh, things that we say hey, I grew up with that, you know, it's imprinted on us. (laughs) And, and, you know, how do we feel about those kinds of things? And and, uh, definitely a lot of different opinions out there. Um, Then we'll circle back and and talk about those spoilers for Bill and Ted. But I'll warn people when the spoilers start. So (laughs) (laughs) I love the film. What did you think, Frankie? I liked it, too. Uh, it was a nice revisit to familiar characters Mm, and mm -hmm. the fact that it wasn't a two year later kind of thing, but we now had 
a nice span of their life has passed when we're checking back in with them. Mm -hmm. And it makes it relevant to where a lot of us as Gen Xers are right. to step in with these characters because we probably shared a lot of the whimsy that those characters had in their initial outing when we first saw them. <laughs> right, right. And our perspective on life has shifted right along with the characters. Yeah. So I think for Gen Xer in particular, it's probably more relevant in mm -hmm. how we're looking at the film and yeah. uh, what it gives us. And I think that's about as spoiler free as I can say that. What do you think? <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, you know, it was cleverly crafted in that way, you know, it, and, and we talked about that in some previous episode that they actually, it was the original writers writing yeah. this new film. So they're bringing their own perspective as well as where they feel Bill and Ted would have evolved to. Um, and you know, in, in Gen X, one of the things that defines uh, us as a cohort is our kind of inability to find a path that we're completely satisfied with in life or having to reinvent ourselves periodically to keep up with the changes around us. Um, it, it's something that was really unique for us because of the way technology developed uh, through our uh, late teens going into our 20s and you know you see Bill and Ted going through some of the same kind of mental challenges in their own way uh, of of a, a world that changed around them and them still holding on to old patterns and needing to evolve to essentially face the music so uh so i'm you know we'll, we'll talk more on the spoilers but i thought i was very pleased with how it turned out i thought it was very appropriate for where bill and ted would be i would agree the emotional impact aspect of it is a little harder because mm -hmm. given my choice i would probably have preferred to have seen this in a theater yeah and had that kind of experience Mm. dropping back into them yeah so seeing it in the comfort of your own home mm -hmm. in some ways it maybe minimizes the initial excitement of it yeah but yeah. you have to kind of put that aside when you're uh when you're digesting something like that but you know <laughs> what i mean it's like yes, the spectacle yes. aspect of it probably gets like toned down a little bit for us. It's true, true. You know, but it doesn't mean that it isn't any less satisfying or not something that you want to see or devote some time to. So, yeah. In terms of how, you know, younger generations from us would perceive it, I think they will particularly enjoy the film for for how it reflects on the old themes of the previous film because even the younger generations really seem to love Bill and Ted as you know uh, as a film and i i think it captures the best of the the um ideas from the previous films and i think that even generations younger than us will appreciate the story and the uh experiences and the the humor and um 
and and the reflections of the old films so uh so i think it was just an overall great experience i'd be interested to know because it did it it did chart in the top three of the box office on its release um i'd be interested to know you know the proportion of gen x <laughs> that was diving into that movie versus uh versus other folks it'd be interesting it's probably to know that. Loud, large mm -hmm. i should say that you know it it serves that uh it serves that place that you know gen x right now sandwiched with, between two much more vocal generations yes as we are <laughs> mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely where you keep seeing the memes where it's uh the character holding the wine glass while you have the <laughs> the boomer and the millennial arguing <laughs> yelling at each other about whatever so it's true but we are a generation that was given a lot of promise for the future and maybe our expectations have not completely met what we were assuming but we were a generation that was allowed to kind of develop independently to wander wow. neighborhoods and ride bicycles we weren't as sheltered or or uh micromanaged as the generations that proceed that follow us and mm -hmm. you know this movie does have a lot of that like you know you were supposed to be this thing and this is what you are and now this is how you're yeah. going to you know go ahead and embrace who you are and what it is you have to do which i think mm -hmm. in a nutshell is what you were talking about earlier it's yeah yeah our generation heavy so, expectations put on us for what we were going to be able to accomplish yeah and yet a a scenario in which we're told we could do everything anything that we wanted but not given a lot of direction so and we were given lots of options uh without a lot of direction um uh, that's how i felt uh when i was growing up um the direction was there you know if you sought it out but it wasn't being explicitly given the direction we were being given was from a previous generation who had a very confined idea of what a career path would be or what a family should be um, whereas our generation was told we can do anything our paths are open and and we tried to grab on to the openness and the freedom uh, and reject some of the old ideas but in that rejection lost a sense of direction um, there was a survey or not a survey a study done back in the 90s i cannot recall the study uh right now where that study became very iconic because the media really latched onto it in that gen x was the first cohort in several cohorts in sequence whose members would not be as prosperous as their parents uh, in, in terms of success in life um, we were a smaller quote cohort as well there are fewer of us so uh, and you can actually look at um, the number of people in my high school we were such a small high school you can actually look at the number of people graduating in our high school and see it go down 
through my generation. <laughs> I was one of the smallest graduating classes for many years in 91. And then it started gradually going back up again. Uh, so it, it's been interesting seeing, um, seeing some of the stuff that, that those studies were saying, uh, you know, kind of coming out in, uh, in reality as well as reality kind of contradicting it as well. Oh, there's been a lot of success in Gen X that was not anticipated. Well, we were still given a pretty heavy work ethic. Yes. And yes. we were given probably the biggest drive of consumerism of any generation, which is why I think we are the biggest hobbyist generation comparatively. That's true. More so than the boomers who have hobbies, but nothing like us. Mm -hmm. And the millennials have their hobbies, but I don't feel like they take them as seriously as we do. Mm -hmm. And that is really kind of where we sit in our close attachment and mm -hmm. association with pop culture. And yeah. the fact that a lot of the technology that was developed came in a reaction to us pursuing those things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and now it's so easy for generations that follow to have access to things so there's not the as i've pointed out many times <laughs> on this podcast there's not the drive to find it you know there's right. not right yeah, there's not the there's not the sorting through a flea market on a saturday morning not the you know digging right stalking something and hoping that it'll show up that we mm -hmm. experienced for our fandoms and for the the different things that that got us excited to get up in the morning mm -hmm. so yeah or I think, yeah or experimenting with ideas and seeing yeah. if that was you know something we could evolve like taking things apart putting it back together yeah, yeah. exactly so i mean there's a little of that that we can come back to when we mm -hmm. we circle back to bill and ted and yeah yeah but and I say that we didn't have direction, but I, you talk about the work ethic and because we had that work ethic instilled in us from our previous cohort, mm -hmm. we found our direction. Yeah. We weren't given the direction. We, we looked for it. We found it. And that's why a lot of people here in Gen X didn't find the, the real career paths and success until closer to their thirties. Some people not even until their forties Yeah, uh, because they, they had to find that direction and piece it together for themselves uh, and make it work. But we're not bad at grinding it out when we have to. So. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and thinking of other things, I want to go on to thinking about other things that's already been out there. That's kind of, again, that revival or rewind of a, a film franchise that was iconic, like either in the late 70s through the 80s, maybe even early 90s. Um, I like to go back to Tron, uh, which came out in 2010, the new uh, Tron Legacy that came out in 2010. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it had such a mixed reception. Um, now I, I didn't have, liked it. I didn't have a great attachment to that property. Yeah, I was aware yeah. of it. But and, and so I didn't digest the 2010 film as heavily. You know, in fact, yeah, it was one of yeah. those movies that when I did watch it, it was on, but I was doing work when I was watching it, kind of oh, thing. Right, right. But even right. then I wasn't fully digesting it. 
I was mm -hmm. just acknowledging the fact that, okay, they did bring back the other characters. And so there is that common thread that mm -hmm. sparked my interest, right? Mm -hmm. To see what more of the story was there to be told. What was your impressions yeah. of it? So it was a little mixed myself. I mean, I enjoyed the film, but I was a little questioning as to what they did um, with with trying to bring clue back into the the story so i felt that taking an older actor and de-aging them is a tricky thing to do yeah. in any franchise um in this case it was considered an electronic creation in the universe so you could kind of put your head into the mental space of well, they're not trying to create him to walk around in the real world with other folks. They're creating him to be a projection within a electronic world. And so it's a, so we already know he's a computer generated character, whatever. Right. Um, so there's that kind of, the little uncanny valley ness that was kind of being skirted around in there that a lot of people were reacting to you know i i kind of accepted it uh as being just a really you know not quite perfect computer projection type character uh, i also appreciated the fact that they didn't try to pick up where the previous one left off time wise they allowed time to have passed and for this to be new characters experiencing the old world. But there was still a sense of continuity, which was, I right. think, important for the older fans. Yeah, yeah. Connected back. Um, that idea that everything that happened in the previous film is part of the universe. Uh, they're just going back into the universe at some time later um, with a new set of events happening. Um, and I think that to me is my preferred way of seeing people revisit these universes. Um, a lot of people are, you know, get nervous about remakes. I get nervous about remakes, <laughs> especially when the remake is a completely different set of artists putting the piece together. Um, or if there's a remake and there's no like literary basis like right shoot, we could do a whole episode about or probably episode series about dune um <laughs> it, i don't know if you're uh, you know big into the dune franchise but um you know that's another thing it has a literary base and people have been remaking the story or making new parts of the story over the years I so have, have a, people reacting different than yeah. something like Tron that didn't have a literary base. See, I have a specific rule of thumb in my mind for how I feel about that kind of thing. Mm, okay. It depends on whether or not the character or storyline in question that we're talking about is archetypal. Oh, and okay. By that, I mean, I will accept constant reboots of Superman and Batman and these kinds of characters that have existed for 80 plus years now, yeah. because that is the nature of that type of character. That right. because it is an archetype, it needs to keep getting recreated for the next generation. And the comics are doing that already. 
their comics are already doing that. Yeah. And they acknowledge that the previous things have been there and with multiverses and that they're still there. And, you know, it's just the fact that that type of serialized character at some point in time so that it's accessible to a new audience. You've moved him from the 30s to the 40s to the 50s to the 60s. And, you know, and he keeps taking on the character and the politics and the mm -hmm. struggle of that particular time frame. And yeah, yeah. that is important to an archetypal character. Mm. Archetypal characters reflect other archetypal characters. Like Superman, I would argue, is one of your only legitimate 20th century Christ figures. Right. And you've got to play him a certain way, but you can change all sorts of other details around him. But you have to be true to what that archetype is, and I'll be happy. You know, he doesn't have to still be a 1939, 1940 newsman. I get it. Mm -hmm. We've passed it. Right. And I would argue with those types of characters, your version of the character really depends on when you entered. Yeah. I've heard people say that your Peter Pan depends on who you saw as Peter Pan, if you saw Sandy, D Sandy Duncan on Broadway or something, you mm -hmm. know, and you know, with Batman, I mean, he starts off in the 30s and he's like practically Sherlock Holmes and he's like smoking a pipe and he's carrying mm -hmm. a gun. And then in the 40s, you know, uh, with the advent of horror comics, he was like practically Dracula with a 50-foot cape jumping off of buildings and, mm, you know, yeah. it was insane. And then in the 50s, it was all the sci-fi stuff. He was going to alien planets and, mm -hmm. you know, and and doing all kinds of weird stuff like that. And in the 60s, he was a lot like the TV series and he was fighting on top of giant appliances. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Him and Pal. I mean, the modern Batman that people tend to think of as what Batman is really didn't exist maybe until the late 70s, you know, with the, the Denny O'Neill, uh, what they call Ra's al Ghul, Ra's al Ghul stuff mm -hmm. that, that was created. So archetypal characters, totally okay with it yeah but yeah. if you created a storyline that's plugged in to a specific group of characters being played in a specific way mm -hmm. and it becomes a touchstone for a generation at that time that is where you're going to get into a lot of trouble for how you interpret it mm -hmm. because if you were we're just working it to make a statement and say mm -hmm. like, yeah, we're going to do this because we're political and we're going to do this because we want to do something new with gender, race, and yeah, you know, and I think you've got to be careful about which products you're attempting to do this to and how yeah. you're breaking it in. Like, for instance, I would be fine if somebody wanted to do a Black Spirit story. There's as many, there's as much room for that as in you know, there, mm -hmm. he, we've, he can be done a million different ways. Again, he's an archetype. Fine. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. You know, but like the Ghostbusters franchise, yeah. the expectation, I think, was for some sort of continuation of the original stories. Yes. Something that felt earned, something mm -hmm. that had a sense of legacy to it. I don't think anybody cared. You may have some, some of the the difficult types of fans who live in their mother's basement and are maybe uh, misogynistic, you know, I'm sure that exists mm -hmm. in every type of fandom. So we'll just put that yeah. aside for a moment. I yeah, said yeah. most general fans would not have cared if it was women mm -hmm. or different ethnicities 
-hmm. as long as there was a true line between what was happening previously so that they could touch back with the thing they loved so much. And that really wasn't presented to them in the new mm -hmm. Ghostbusters movie. All right, right. You know, I felt, and I didn't hate that movie. It was, it was fine as a movie. It yeah. just didn't have, you know, as clear of a connection as I would have liked it to have had to the first movies. And I even said as much, leaving the theater. I said, well, it was cool mm -hmm. to see some really cool female comedians, you know, do this and, you yeah. know, kind of give it a different spin. That's fun. You know, it was a fun movie. Mm -hmm. But it didn't have those connective points of it, it felt more like a comedy for the sake of being a comedy as, a, mm -hmm. as opposed to like a real working universe that just happened to be comedic at the same time. That idea yeah. where it's, I, I, it's one, I, I sometimes will call it fan fiction, <laughs> where someone had an idea of wanting to write a story in the universe with their own types of characters mm -hmm. without necessarily rooting it in the, the original universe. Yeah, I mean, it does. It just, it, it's like alternate reality. But the trailer for the new upcoming Ghostbusters that we should have already had released kind of struck the 13 year old me, you know, <laughs> yeah. in different places. Cause there was that revisiting of the context from 1984, you know, the trailer where you see them finding the original Ecto 1, you know, in a mm -hmm. barn. Oh, you know, like you get like the yep. chill bumps. Yes. You know, your neck from that. That's what I want to see. I want to see something that gives me chill bumps just talking about it. Yeah. You know, just yeah. thinking about the thing being represented in a new context that will make sense, that doesn't feel forced. Yes. That I felt that way with Bill and Ted when I was seeing those yeah. trailers, yeah. that same chill. They had constant opportunity to come back and do Bill and Ted, and mm -hmm. they did it when it felt comfortable for them to do it yeah and that makes that work for me it doesn't feel like a last minute cash grab it feels like let's come back and have fun with something that was fun yeah. you know and and that's great you know mm -hmm. but that's that's kind of what I want to see from the revisiting of a previous franchise but what did yeah. you think of the Ghostbusters uh film when they when they did that uh, so I, same thing. I mean, I can't really add to what you've said. You picked some amazing cast members in there. Those women were like the perfect counterparts to, to be Ghostbusters, but without the rooting in what it was before, um, you know, it's not, it's not that feeling of continuation. Um, I think a lot of people felt that way with uh, Dune, the film, uh, the one that was done in the 80s. There were people who didn't feel like it was connected to the literature. They were deeply into the, the characters and the continuity as Herbert had been writing these people in his book for years but you put it on film and it didn't feel like it was rooted in the universe he had created. Um, Certainly you know. not a two and a half hour, three hour movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, and then later on when you saw people trying to play in that universe again, 
they understood that feedback and they went back and tried to root it a little bit more into that original uh, universe that he had created. And I think this new film is making that attempt as well, the new Dune film uh, that's coming out this year. Looking forward to seeing that as well. It just um, depends on what it is that's really missing as an ingredient because the new mm -hmm. Ghostbusters movie, for instance, uh, this last previous one, it tried to include New York, the character, the same yeah. way the first two movies did. And I applaud it for doing that because if you've been on a trip to New York, you can watch a Ghostbusters movie and point out the, uh, the sites. Yep. And one was the same way. It mm -hmm. just didn't have that additional through line, which I think was the right. thing that it really would have needed to really right. root it with other fans. But mm -hmm. with the literary problem that exists, mm -hmm. you know, the most notable one like that to me would probably be The Shining. Mm, I've heard people say that as well. Uh, that's one I have not read, so I don't have the, the literary basis on that one, but I've heard that. Well, it's, it's a good Kubrick movie. Right, right. It's not necessarily a clear Stephen King movie. Stephen King, right. It, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, if it, as a Kubrick movie, it's phenomenal. You know, that's why I said it's, mm -hmm. it's it's award-winning visuals that will capture the imagination forever, you know, in terms of how it was done. When they did Dr. Sleep, which was more of a sequel to the book, they did the film in such a way to still pay tribute to the movie, the Kubrick movie. So they kind of had to blend two different ideas of what it was supposed to be mm -hmm. to make that movie work when they did it yeah. because so many people who would walk into it, their whole view of The Shining was only going to be the Kubrick film. All right. Yeah. I remember so, the controversy when Lord of the Rings was being conceived uh, back in, you know, 2000, 2001, before the film was released, December 2001, the first film. The, the deep concern people had about whether Peter Jackson and his people were going to be able to take this literary work that people felt incredibly passionate about and effectively put it on film uh, in a way that, that felt real. Um, and I, uh, I was deeply part of that fandom and knew people who had been deeply in love with that literature for many years, who felt that Peter Jackson did it right. And probably because they made that conscious effort to base every decision they made on, is this right for the universe? Is this right for the character? You know, when you have to compensate <laughs> <laughs> because you can't do something in literature because it's not going to work on film. Yeah, those are difficult decisions to make. What you bring to it as a fan and as an audience will always deeply affect how you appreciate it. Mm -hmm. With The Lord of the Rings, I've been told that the Tolkien estate, the family, did not enjoy the Peter Jackson films and thought they were too violent. Uh, and yeah, and I'm not sure. I think they appreciated the effort, but probably didn't enjoy the films, yeah. Appreciated that money, but <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Well, and here's my thought on that. Yeah. A lot of my group 
of men in the Gen X generation who are similar to me, you know, we came up with Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. And we came up with a lot of schlocky 80s <laughs> fantasy films. Yeah, yeah. So our idea of how that was going to be interpreted would be forever affected by that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you might have another person who reading fantasy at that point in time would have been more influenced by you know, the fantasy that would have been more prevalent, which would have been T.H. White's The Once and Future King, which is not very violent. A lot of stuff about fairies, which is Mm -hmm. not very violent. You know, a much more uh, light fantasy interpretation. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I wonder, you know, how much, say like the, the Tolkien children probably were more influenced by thinking of it along those lines. Yeah, possibly. And you know, obviously Tolkien himself fought in World War One, so he knew clearly what real battle would have been like mm-hmm. and and how, you know, he probably didn't reflect that in how he was writing it because, mm-hmm. you know, he wanted a younger audience to be able to enjoy the books. Mm-hmm. But it certainly did translate up into the screen exactly yeah. anything that was being implied. Right, so. Right. I guess what I'm trying to say there is our perspective on what we think a thing should be. <laughs> yeah. It's like any, cause they're, they were all definitely of an older generation uh, in terms of what their expectation of probably should have been. But I've heard the books themselves, you know, at the time, you know, people are like, Oh, well, this is clearly world war two and this is clearly the Nazis and da, 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 da. Right. And then you would have, in the 60s, a whole bunch of the flower children got into the Lord of the Rings and their viewpoint on it was totally different. And people take it on to mean different things at different times. And some movies play better at different points in history. I think, you know, a lot of people right now are probably revisiting a lot of Orwellian types of things as they have of the future so Mm -hmm. 1984 has been downloaded more than any other classic book in the last six months Mm, no surprising fascinating fascinating (laughs) thing between that and animal farm uh yeah yeah orwell had uh had that mindset that uh, a lot of us are kind of circling back to right now but moving on uh Another one that I think gets tremendous criticism is Mm -hmm. the Indiana Jones uh, Crystal Skull sequel to the first three Indiana Jones movies, which follow a more specific format. And I have, that's one that I actually have more mixed feelings about. Yeah, same. Well, I wonder, and I did want to mention, you know, the difference between you know when you have that literary base you have a core base to go back to when you're making a film to try to reflect what that original base was trying to be or say whereas things like indiana jones that wasn't a literary work that the film itself formed its own basis same with ghostbusters the film itself formed that universe formed that basis so anything that comes after it has to emulate the film 
that came before it in order to really be connectable. Does that make sense? It does. And there you have a bunch of different ingredients. And I wonder to what extent certain parts of them are important to whoever is criticizing it. Yeah. Because you had some people who did not like the subject matter of some of the things that were included. And mm. here is my take on that. That part I was totally fine with because I got what the director was trying to do, which is the fact that the first three movies take place in the 30s and 40s. And right. Jones is a pulp character who was reflecting the pulp fiction of the 30s and 40s. Mm. He was that kind of Perils of Pauline, you know, adventurer character who mm -hmm. fulfilled that kind of role as an action adventure hero. Mm -hmm. Now, as soon as they moved the character into the 50s, because he would have aged into the 50s, mm -hmm. the pulp of the 50s is different. It's starting to go into sci-fi at that point. That's right. That's where you have flying saucers. That's where you have nuclear bomb stuff. That's all the yeah. things that they were doing was legitimate 50s pulp. You know, they were, they were including the right stuff because the pulp had changed. And so the character now found himself in a different set of uh, magazines, I guess. <laughs> yeah. In paperback. <laughs> you have been in before, for, for lack of a better way to say it. So mm -hmm. all that I got because I was like, yeah, they are totally doing, you know, that sort of thing. And the character would have aged because mm -hmm. you have some people who felt like, no, Indiana Jones has to be World War II era, has to be Nazis, has to be this, has to be that. And I'm like, okay, well, does that then mean it needs to be a new actor? Because mm -hmm. freezing the character in a specific time frame, then that means he needs to be played by different people you know, yeah. as time goes yeah. on, like you get a James Bond sort of thing going on then. Yeah. Where, where, you know, I said, is that what you want? And I think people struggled with that for a long time because you had some actors who were like, yeah, we need to have uh, like a Chris Pratt or somebody like that become the new Indiana Jones. And others who really just wanted it to be Harrison Ford. And if you want to see him age, and you want to see the character age, that means he's going to be now living in different time frames. Yeah. And he has to be. He has to be. And so you have to reflect that. Now, I did not like the actor playing the son of Indiana Jones. Okay. The whole mutt laying thing. Uh, mm -hmm. That was more the turnoff for me. All right. With how that was presented and how that was shoehorned into that story. All the other characters returning, the through line, the pulpy stuff. I was okay with all of that, but that aspect of the plot line and how that character kind of melded into the storyline, that was the thing that set me off. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting, it's incredibly interesting you mentioned that because one of the things that made Bill and Ted so great was that idea of passing on your story to another generation. Yeah, You know, I'm bringing in a character that is a child of the familiar character, you know, uh, and, and handing, you know, having that handoff process. So it's possible that they had the right idea, but the execution just wasn't there for Indiana Jones. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, it was given a lot of hate. I mean, South Park mm-hmm. was uh, merciless to it. At that yeah. Time. And uh, yeah, most of the hate I heard was around that idea of it's aliens. I'm like, well, um, in uh, in the previous movies, it was magic. <laughs> so explain that one. <laughs> so is it magic or is it aliens? Like, what is it? And also the the nature of the audience changed. And I think the creators were trying to recognize that in the fact that audiences now want some kind of scientific or even a sci-fi root, something that they can mentally say, oh, that's, that's the rules of the universe uh, kind of thing. Even in fantasy, they create a very clear set of rules for the universe, and people seem to want a film or a television show to follow its rules um, and not throw new things in. That's why so much was criticized about the new Star Wars films, um, uh, starting with Force Awakens. Um, because there were new concepts being introduced about the Force um, or new ways of describing the kinds of uh, political situations that were going on that were new to the universe. Uh, a new way of describing its own history that was new. And, it, and a lot, I think a lot of people felt like it broke rules and, uh, and they weren't completely comfortable with the, with the rule breaking. Yeah, the way the protagonist was <laughs> set up in the prequels is mm-hmm. still the thing that bothers a lot of people, probably yeah. more so than the easy low-hanging fruit to complain about, which yeah. would be Midichlorian and Jar Jar Binks. Right, right. And there's a certain group of people who were dissatisfied anyway, because I remember talking to a friend somewhere before the second movie and saying, what, what did you expect? You were this age when you saw the first Star Wars movie. Did you want the movie to grow up with you? Did you want this movie to be like a Quentin Tarantino-esque Jedi battle? (laughs) Is that what you were expecting? Because the universe didn't change. You did. Mm -hmm. Like, agreed, I didn't care for aspects of the story presentation. You know, and, and to me, that is because... Lucas did such a wonderful job of archetyping and doing the hero's journey and following all these clear storytelling devices in the original trilogy. Mm -hmm. And he didn't on the prequels because Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, if you want to get biblical, the story of, uh, of Anakin and Luke is kind of like the David Saul story in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So I think what should have been done is we should have had Anakin introduced to us as a capable young man, as opposed to going back in to childhood. To childhood. Yeah. And then we could have seen like a King Saul kind of chosen one rise and fall. And when we introduced the shepherd boy aspect of Luke Skywalker, that contrast is much clearer, you know? Right. And right, right. That makes sense. Portray Saul in the Bible, he's portrayed as like the hunky muscular superhero. <laughs> so that when you finally 
and, and when you finally get the 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 king david character introduced as like a shepherd boy yeah. it's such a contrast it strikes you you know yeah. yeah and there was no contrast there was no building you know for us to see somebody who was given everything fail you know that's that's i think that would have been the meteor arc for them to have done there mm -hmm. you know and the rest of the stuff is kind of superfluous as far as i was concerned that would have been the thing to like really bring somebody in make them very special you know like the ladies can't look at him in the eye because he's so dashing you know <laughs> the guys want to be him because he's so cool and then mm -hmm. he just makes poor poor character decisions mm -hmm. you know <laughs> that would have been be the better thought process there but you know yeah. again yeah. that's like following what the archetypes are you know and that's not mm -hmm. what happened what happened here was more of a wouldn't it be cool to see what this person was like as a little boy yeah okay. which basically happened with multiple characters and we weren't satisfied mm -hmm. with how that was done though i will take a moment to defend the solo movie right now and say that i actually thought that was a good movie love that movie it gets way it gets way too much garbage. Yeah. yeah. It came out at a time of saturation. Yeah. I think that was the the main thing is that it was well done. It was to me believable. I didn't think it broke rules. Um no. it, ans it answered questions without breaking rules. That's how I felt about it. He did the heck out of that character. Oh yeah. It was really good delivery uh for both Han Solo and Lando. Sure. yeah no they were they were it was fantastic in terms of honoring what the characters were supposed to be so mm -hmm. yeah I, I take issue with, with that thing getting criticism but yeah but yeah in the in the new films same thing it's like people are you know you introduced characters you introduced concepts and stuff and I, for me i loved the films personally so i'm not going to go into you know talking about that because we've we've kind of covered star wars a little bit already and we can go back and and dive into that detail later another time but but yep. yeah it's that that idea of when you create a movie that becomes iconic you also set rules for your universe that people latch on to and so it's difficult to try to either extend that rules with new rules or to break those rules uh so and, and i don't think anyone sees it as rules they just um you know some people may you know make that connection of i have rules in my head it doesn't fit the rules uh but other people are just like you know it just didn't work for me and maybe can't quite put their finger on why uh so and and that's happening with the disney remakes i think um a lot of the you know disney went through its revival in the early 90s with the with things like uh the little mermaid lion king aladdin uh, beauty and the beast and now we're getting these live action remakes of films and it, from that era and the live action remakes are actually making an attempt to make small adjustments to the story you know make it modern feeling uh extend it with new music um and you know you have casting challenges involved with that you need someone who is can embody the character but also 
bring the feel that the that the director wants to bring to the film as a new entity so but those classic movies created a universe that had its own rules and a story that had its own progression and they were complete remakes these are all like remaking the the story as it was as opposed to extending it so there's even more expectation of it needs to be like the original and there's no way you can make aladdin like the original without just, robin williams yeah it just depends on what it is so, you yeah. want out of that because mm -hmm. that's that's such a different can of worms for me yeah i liken it to this mm -hmm. there's a song you like yeah and another artist who's also a legitimate artist covers that song mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how much you like the cover is going to be affected by how much you liked the original song and how much you like the new artist who is covering it I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And all the different Disney remakes have affected me that way. Mm. Uh, yeah, instance, I'm biased. I'm oh, oh, sorry. I go ahead. Go ahead. For instance, like I, you know, some of it I can take or leave, but mm -hmm. the jungle book, for instance, the more recent remake of that, mm -hmm. John Favreau is in my opinion, one of the voices of our generation. Yes. And I, probably like his remake better than the original because mm -hmm. it's a great John Favreau movie and I mm -hmm. like John Favreau yeah. <laughs> you know that's but that's basically me saying I like that singer yeah you're totally right and I'll tell you there are two that I feel that way for both the actor and the director so with Beauty and the Beast I thought the cast was amazing like they did such a great job casting and executing on the live action film yeah. uh, that I was just instantly in love with it. And I loved where they took Belle as a character um, that made her someone you could connect to on a deeper level, I think, than the original Belle. Um, the answer to the questions that fans have had over the yeah. years, they, they kind of said like, yeah, let's answer that. Let's figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Aladdin, I felt the same way. A lot of people didn't like it because, you know, Robin Williams is God. There's no way you can do Aladdin without Robin Williams. I'm like, no, give Will Smith a chance, first of all and and see what he does with it and let his genie be his genie and not some attempt at robin williams genie you know this is a separate interpretation of the same character kind of thing um but i was also i love will smith so i was a little biased there i thought they cast it really well and i'm a big guy ritchie fan so love guy ritchie films well, so I was really, I was knew I was going to be biased <laughs> going into Aladdin for sure. Yeah, if if certain if certain actors if they strike us a certain way, yeah, certain performances, it's hard for us to overcome how we feel Bias. about that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I also think the New Beauty and the Beast was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. and if anything made me whimsical for the original yeah. it's probably jerry orbach's 
performance as Lumiere in the original cartoon. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Ewan McGregor captured it really well. I mean, Ewan McGregor was fantastic. Yeah. But I'm, I'm very fond of the Jerry Orbach version, you know, because I thought he was phenomenal. And for years, you would watch episodes of Law and Order, and I would think to myself, there's Lumiere. Ah, uh, yes, that's true. Yeah. You know? I, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's all good. And those things, I think sometimes if you lose the heart of the original, because, you know, Favreau did, I thought, magic with the Jungle Book, mm -hmm. but I think his least satisfying work is The Lion King. Yeah. Because at that point, they were trying to let all of the new technology and special effects mm -hmm. do some of the work for them. And I think it suffered a little because of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's an uncanny valley kind of thing or, or what, or if it was some of the performances I didn't connect to as well. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he framed it as best he could frame it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just don't touch a thing if that's all you're going to do. You mm -hmm. know, when they did the remake of Psycho with uh, oh, Vince Vaughn. With Vince Vaughn, yeah. Vince Vaughn, when they redid mm -hmm. Psycho, and it was like a frame-by-frame -frame remake of Psycho. Yeah. Completely unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> if you got to do a frame-by-frame -frame remake, don't, don't make it. Right, right. <laughs> There's nothing new to say about it. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. What's the point? Just uh, <laughs> put a, a new marketable actor in, into it? I don't understand. Well, I think, um, I think that kind of takes us to anticipating what's ahead of us because it does seem like we're going through a period of, of a lot of people wanting to either remake things or extend things. We've already talked about indiana jones you know they're talking about a new one around the corner uh and you know skepticism about how that <laughs> would turn out um the last starfighter has been discussed at this point and it makes me nervous because they've talked about it will be you know taking it to a new generation they're going to you know it's going to be kind of like I described with Tron where the story takes place in a later time uh, and, you know, acknowledges the original film as being complete canon and then just, you know, creates a new story that's anchored on that canon. So I don't know how I feel. I'm concerned. I think a lot of it goes in, goes back to what we were just talking about is, do I like the filmmakers? Do I like the, the work that they do? Do I like the way they've cast it? And, and have the writers written a story that I feel like it can connect with? Um, I knew with Bill and Ted, I was going to connect with it because it was the original writers, you know? So I, for me, I was going into it pretty confident I was going to like that film. Uh, but what's going to happen when it's a new set of writers, a new director, a new cast with a different story i'm not sure i'm cautious it depends on your appreciation for the thing you know mm. when i started as a comic book collector 
-hmm. I would buy a comic book because I loved the character. I liked Superman or whatever. Yeah. yeah. As an adult, I will still occasionally buy something, but it tends to be more because I like the writer. And Mm -hmm. I'll follow the writer between properties maybe I don't care as much about because their voice is something that I enjoy in the work. And the character is almost superfluous to it. So Mm -hmm. I think that can be true in a lot of these types of things. And when we're looking at who the people are who are putting it together and all that obviously plays into our appreciation for a thing. It's like the criticism of the second one of the new Star Wars trilogy movies. I've heard people say that it's a good Ryan Johnson film, but they don't think it's as good of a Star Wars film. Right, right. In terms of uh, what's being, you know, Mm -hmm. they're they're basically saying, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. (laughs) Yeah, Which is is an argument to make. We've heard, heard a lot of that. I've heard a lot of that for sure. Speaking of Ryan Johnson, Knives Out, people see that movie if you've not seen knives out definitely see that if you like the whodunits uh along the same lines of of movies like clue uh where there's both mystery and humor kind of tied in together intertwined that is a fun movie so Uh, want to talk about bill and ted face the music with a little more detail Let's do it. So spoilers from this point forward, we're going to talk about things that happen in Bill and Ted Face the Music. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want to be spoiled, you can uh, cut it here because that's going to be what we talk about now. So let's do it. I am going to talk first about one little mistake in the film (laughs) that I had to mention right up front that hit me because of our recent episode because when we were talking about the original film we were talking about the fact that it came out in 89 but it was set in 88 but they had the rufus hologram say that he met bill and ted in 89 yeah and that i'm is like nope he met them in 88 <laughs> well i read somewhere even more recently that mm-hmm. the original movie was filmed like uh, early 87 or late 86, and then it was shelved for a while. Yeah, that they, I can see that. The studio actually held it back and hadn't even decided to move forward with it. And then, of course, they did, and it was a huge financial windfall for them at the time. Yeah. But they put it off to the side because it wasn't a big movie when they were making it. So. Yeah. It was a bit of a passion project, it sounded like, for the... Yeah the the guys who wrote it yeah you know the film script for uh bill and ted face the music they started working on that as early as 2010 really that makes sense makes sense so they've been in discussion about it for a while and you know here we have 2020 when it's taking place but mm-hmm. obviously in a non-covid time <laughs> yeah they just skipped over that idea uh so maybe it happened in february i don't (laughs) they didn't actually give a a month and day that just said 2020 so of course you know they were prophesied to write this song that's supposed to save the world as you know that this was the plot of the original movie and you know now 
were 2020 and while they were at one, one point in time were a really amazing act, they have fallen down in their career to playing community centers and weddings. <laughs> and, and now because they haven't produced the song that's going to save the world, um, time and space are beginning to collapse, you know? And the thing that's interesting to me uh, is the fact that they actually look tired. They look like tired older Gen Xers. <laughs> they're introduced wide-eyed. And the best bit at the opening of this movie uh, is when they are playing at the wedding of Mrs. Ted. <laughs> One of Missy's weddings. Yeah. <laughs> and so Missy, who in the first movie was married to Bill's father, mm-hmm. you find during their wedding toast had divorced Bill's father and married Ted's father and uh-huh. then divorced Ted's father and married Ted's little brother. So the joke just keeps going on with her. It's that's the (laughs) and them trying to make the most of it as far as the toast goes and and welcome, you know, that true Bill and Ted true Bill and Ted style. True to how they would have done that. Yeah. And also very early on we get introduced to their daughters, who are fun. You know, their daughters are fun characters. Uh and uh in they, their early uh, 20s. Yeah, they're in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are music fanatics, just like their dads. And so, in fact, they, Billy and Thea are potentially two of the only people who get everything their dads do. That's true. <laughs> at that point. So, he uh, introduced to uh, Rufus's daughter, who has traveled back in time to let them know, uh, and her name is Kelly, Mm-hmm. Uh, that they you know, have to get about creating this this song. Mm-hmm. And so while Kelly takes them through the future to, to try to make this happen, you know, uh, Bill and Ted's daughters end up deciding that the way that they can help their dad is by taking a time machine into the past to try to put together a super band to assist their fathers. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, while the, uh, the people in the future who have decided that, the, that Bill and Ted are going to fail and they need to fix the timeline and potentially the only way to fix the timeline is to probably just kill Bill and Ted. So they send uh, a time traveling robot named Dennis. <laughs> Dennis. <the> <laughs> yeah. He likes to point out his name is Dennis. Over uh, and over again. Yes. Kill them. So that's the, those are the three through lines that are happening in the plot. Bill and Ted, while they're in the year 2067, no, no, wait, wait, no, that's, sorry, 2067 is the year they travel to, to meet themselves on their deathbeds. Right. Yes. That was my favorite iteration of them. Oh, the, 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 you didn't like the the prison tat version of them? (laughs) Oh God, the prison, oh, that was funny. It was fun. It was really good. But my favorite so, was definitely the rest home one. You know, the bit where they uh, were, were camping out in Dave Grohl's house, who makes <laughs> a great appearance in the movie, is also. Yes. It's also fantastic. So good. So good. 
so Bill and Ted, their their plot line, while they know they've got to create this song, they're worried uh, that the babes from uh, medieval times that they've married, their marriages may be in trouble, they've gone to counseling, which is a very different sort of thing than the first movies. And so they decide they're going to travel through time to try to figure out how to save their marriages. And they progressively are making things worse mm-hmm. with their... Uh, encounters with future versions of themselves who have still yet to write anything that's amazing that's going to change the world because they're thinking they're going to steal it from their future selves but the further they go along in time the more they realize there's no song (laughs) there's still no song and that they just watch themselves get progressively worse over time (laughs) And their wives even end up traveling in time at some point to go back and talk to younger versions of themselves and try to knock some sense into them about their relationships with Bill and Ted. And you've got a lot of fun, goofy time travel stuff going on. The uh, band that Bill and Ted's daughters, uh, Billy and Thea, put together includes Jimi Hendrix, Louis Armstrong, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and the internet tells me Ling Loon mm-hmm. is uh, a famous Asian flautist from history. And then there's a cave woman. Percussionist that gets included into the whole group. So this movie also uh, features Kid Cootie, a hip hop artist who, who apparently is an expert on uh, universal physics and time travel to some extent when they <laughs> ask him questions. But uh, so with the gist of the, the film, uh, uh, while the, the daughters are attempting to put together the group, Dennis in one of his time traveling attempts to, uh, to kill Bill and Ted accidentally executes the daughters and all of the historical figures <laughs> who all go to hell. Yes. And Bill and Ted, to rescue their daughters, even after they've received, supposedly on a flash drive, the song that will unite the world, mm-hmm. risk destroying the flash drive to go to hell themselves, to re-encounter death and win back their daughters and the historical mm-hmm. figures into the realm of the living. And that is when we get to see death again. Who is yes! fantastic. The- William Sadler is back. I love it. Love it. It's so good. And we find out he was in the group that they were in, but they had to put him out of the group and there was like a restraining order and there's all this stuff. Because <laughs> he kept wanting to do bass solos that were like 20 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the daughters, rather than Bill and Ted, figure out the best way to get death back on their side. And the group arrives where they're supposed to at Interstate 210, where they're mm-hmm. the mountain. MP46 marker. Mile point 46. Yep. This reality is collapsing. And it's at that point in time that the dads realize that the, the Preston and Logan on the USB drive does not refer to them, but refers to their daughters. Yep. That they're the people who actually put this song together. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much that it's them themselves, but the fact that they get everybody, the entire world and all of time and space to participate in a song together. Which is essentially to say that because time and space were collapsing, 
yeah they were able to do that <laughs> yeah yeah so you get like a a, a time-spanning space-spanning version of the coca-cola commercials from the 1960s <laughs> that's true oh my god i didn't think about it that way correct me if i'm right. wrong that is the point of those coca-cola commercials <laughs> no i love uh, the world to sing in perfect harmony yes yeah see that's exactly what it is yep and and so it becomes about it wasn't a song that was written and then performed and recorded that united the world it was a song that united the world together in its original performance you know, and so became less about the song and more about the event of people playing it together. Yeah. And there's a point there where uh, Bill and Ted reunited with their wives, use uh, Rufus's phone booth to create copies of themselves so they can <laughs> move around in space and hand out instruments to everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. That well, idea like, of uh, existing in all places at once. People. Yeah. Yeah. You get that like a vanishing point kind of kind of concept mm-hmm. tapped on top of it. I don't know if that was very, but it was funny. So. Well, yeah, and what Jeff was saying, uh, Hoot was saying, was that um, they were essentially using some of the same concepts of uh, quantum physics or quantum reality, some of the same theories that were applied in ant-man and uh the avengers films in the, oh, the yeah. concept that once you get to a certain point in quantum existence there is no time concept of time and space yeah so somebody was watching the same films apparently <laughs> <laughs> something like that but they succeed with the song and everyone is returned to their proper place in time and history and they, they mm-hmm. flash because there's points in the movie where you you see like George Washington crossing the Potomac, but he gets pushed mm-hmm. to the other place and like and then like some weird other character is put where his, <laughs> he was supposed to be. The and Jesus he, thing was cracking me up. <laughs> so they flip all those characters back to where they're supposed to go, and that's the yep. and that's the the big moment. And you get mm-hmm. to see the the Gen X dads proud of their daughters, you know. Mm-hmm claiming theirs and, and moving forward. So all of that I thought is great. And mm-hmm. their sense of bewilderment about what they were supposed to be doing, I thought was very real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, yep. yeah. very timely for, uh, for our generation. And it was still a nice brain candy kind of movie where you didn't have to think too hard about what you were watching. Yeah, because even though they tried to put all the quantum physics stuff in there, you know, it didn't, that wasn't like the the key important thing. It just became the, oh, that's why thing. And then you move on to the next piece. (laughs) You're not stuck there thinking about, what? Is that possible? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean... And it was it was nice it was it was nice fair and it was something that was welcome. I know I was like, oh, here's mm-hmm. something new I can watch that I'm actually going to enjoy watching. So I was I was definitely in the mood for that. I think 
what I missed about it was sharing it more collectively with my people, with my group, mm -hmm. with fellow genders at the time. Yeah. Because yeah. I think all of us were probably experiencing it in different forms of isolation, thinking to ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, we can identify with the characters and where we are right now mm -hmm. in terms of plotting out the future for our families and our careers and what mm -hmm. comes next. But generally, we're a very go with the flow kind of group. Yeah. And, you know, Hoot was saying, oh, I had the opportunity to be able to sit down and watch it with someone who, you know, had the same feelings and thoughts of the original franchise as I did and love for it. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to, after the film, talk about what we loved about it and, uh, and, yeah, we, we were both very much in love with that film. <laughs> very much. Yeah. I am I I went ahead and I did the Amazon Prime purchase, so I'm I'm gonna be replaying that a, a few times, I think. In, in the, the library. Ways. So you did it right. You made some Gen Xers happy. People who made <laughs> the Ted movie. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for this movie. It's wonderful. Uh, and, you know, at some point we're going to have to now dive into some of these more specific kind of revivals or rewinds or reboots uh, to talk more about our, our specific reactions to them. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, there's a lot that is right around the corner uh, coming up. And then a lot of the ones that we've already talked about, I could certainly, <laughs> I could certainly talk for a long time on, on some of those topics for sure. But it, but you know, I think it comes down to kind of what we were talking about. You know, there's there's rules in the universe. Um, there's things we already like and don't like about the the people that are making the films or being cast in certain roles or whatever, and it shapes how we perceive those things. So that's right. We no longer consume it just for the sheer entertainment value of it. <laughs> yeah and i i always try when i watch something to just kind of see it as its own thing and when i do the more it connects back to the original is when i'm reminded of its connection and so if that is a meaningful connection to me and it makes me feel good then i make a positive connection with the new piece of art as well but if it's something that connects back and does so in a way that doesn't feel like a continuous piece, if it feels disconnected or if it feels like it's breaking a rule that shouldn't be broken, that's when I start to be skeptical or don't make quite as positive of a connection. So I try when I go into it to, to see it as its own thing. But the more they make those connections back, that's when the comparisons start happening in, in my head. We're in an age of, of forced opinion now, too. It's true. It's I true. Uh, downloaded uh, the new Mulan for my daughters for yeah. last so they could enjoy it because they were anticipating that. I'm and excited. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I, I just got it myself. Yeah. One of my more hyper-political friends was like, well, she had some opinions about law enforcement in this country. Da, 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 da. You know, and I think you should tell your daughters 
And I said, mm. tell them what? Let them enjoy their fantasy. Yeah. They're going to have... Mean, they're if you have look to at the cool. real story behind Mulan, it's not even close to either films. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not... I'm not sure why you want to bring down some some girl's enjoyment of a heroine that they like right. at this point in time. So, right. you know, right. that's but that's become a very big thing culturally now. So, yeah, I get it, but still, it's some mix of cancel culture as well as uh, the world of the offended. You know, <laughs> looking for something to be offended by or. I, I think there's this feeling uh, among certain people that they're obligated to stand up for something. Uh, and if they feel like if they accept a piece of art without standing up for something they believe in, maybe they feel like they've compromised their belief. And I, I feel like I think we need to start disconnecting that. You know, so that people don't feel like they're compromising their beliefs by enjoying a piece of art. <laughs> you know, I agree. I think that one of the nice things about our generation and being a Gen Xer is we tend to have an even keel perspective about a lot of those things in yeah. general. I have always found that We're if chill. you take too hard of a swing in any direction, yeah, blowback that's going to eventually come. Mm -hmm. It's going to be painful because things tend to swing, you know? It's true. Yeah, yeah. So I'm always like, if you don't want the blowback to be bad, be careful about how strongly you go at something in one direction. <laughs> that is a really good point. <laughs> because when it comes back, it's going to be vicious. You know, it's like, yep. like, I can comment to that politically. I can comment to that, you know, personally, professionally, and culturally that is almost always the case. And if yeah. anyone is a student of a pop culture, it is Gen Xers. And I can tell you that, you know, anytime the public has pushed us in one direction, it always swings back hard in the opposite. It's true, yeah. You know, no one wants to be pushed anywhere. So yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's just one of those things that that's, I'll always try to like avoid those types of conversations and not because I don't care. Mm -hmm but because I'm hyper aware of that. And, and that's where we are. And that's why you can enjoy great pop culture and great Gen X opinions on this wonderful podcast. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this throwbacks episode of the Gen X Replay podcast. To follow Frankie between shows, look for him at Dance Frankie H on Twitter, as Frankie Hagen on Facebook, and at his dance instructor or real estate websites, dancefrankie.com and frankiehagen.com. To follow me between shows, look for Stephanie Does VO on Twitter and Instagram, and Jacory on YouTube and Twitch. I'll put this info and lots of other fun links in the description for this episode. Subscribe here so you don't miss our next throwbacks and other fun podcast episodes. And help us boost the signal on this podcast by sharing it with friends. Currently, we host on Anchor.fm and aggregate to Apple, Google, and Spotify. Until next episode, be safe out there.